to In the Spotlight. I'm Abigail Pogrebin. Mitch Album is an internationally renowned and best-selling author, journalist, screenwriter, playwright, radio and television broadcaster, and musician whose books have collectively sold, get this, more than 40 million copies worldwide, published in 51 territories and 48 languages. He has written eight New York Times bestsellers, including one of his most popular books, Tuesdays with Maury, about a special relationship he had with a former professor who was dying from ALS. Several of his books have been made into Emmy award-winning and critically acclaimed television movies. In 2006, he founded the nonprofit Say Detroit, an organization for major health, housing, and education initiatives for Detroit's most underserved citizens. Mitch also operates Have Faith Haiti, a home and school in Port-au-Prince, Haiti, which he visits monthly. His latest book, which we're going to talk about today, is called The Little Liar, and it was released in November 2023. It's an incredible book. Welcome to the broadcast, Mitch Album. It's a pleasure to meet you on Zoom. I wish we were in the same room, but it's good to see you. Nice to see you, too. Thanks for having me on. So The Little Liar uh, is an extraordinary novel, and I want to ask where the idea came from, because the publication, in a way, feels prescient. The fact that it came out um, in November, a month after October 7th. Yeah, I can't take any credit for that. Unfortunately, uh, I started it a couple of years ago, so I didn't know the events of the day would be pertinent. But on the other hand, anytime you're going to write about truth and how truth can be uh, abused and anytime you're going to write about the rise of anti-Semitism, you only have to wait a short period of time to be relevant. And so um, I kind of always knew the I always knew the subject matter would be relevant sooner or later. But I didn't write it for relevancy as much as I, I really wrote it more for, you know, a time when when things aren't uh, quite, you know, in center focus, uh, because that's what I worry about more, to be honest. I, I, you know, I grew up with Holocaust survivors in my town. Um, my family has them in them, my extended family. And I worry. When you about, say you grew up with uh, survivors in your town, I just want to remind, even though everyone's a fan, where you grew up. Oh, South Jersey, uh, just outside of Philadelphia. And, uh, you know, we have people on our street who wore long sleeves in the summertime all the time. I remember as a kid asking my mother, you know, why are they wearing long sleeves? It's so hot outside. And she said, well, they have these numbers on their arms. And I'll tell you about it when you're older. You know, well, mm. now we don't have the advantage of people telling us about it when we're older because the people who are there to tell about tell us about it are mostly gone. And so I wanted to write a story with The Little Liar that would last beyond the relevancy phase and maybe be read by people many years from now, young people um, to be reminded of what did indeed go on and how the truth was abused. And the idea before we get to the plot really came to you at Yad Vashem. Am I right? Yeah. Yeah. About Tell me about that. 10 years ago, uh, I, I was on a book tour in Israel and uh, they took me to Yad Vashem. I think it was the first time I had been there. And, uh, you know, I spent hours there and wandered around and I happened upon a video. If you've been there, you know, they have the videos on the walls of different survivors telling their stories. And there was a woman, an older woman who said, well, they always ask us, those of us who survived, why did you get on those trains 
to go to your death. You know, I mean, why would you board a train taking to a concentration camp? And she said what they didn't know is that they often use Jewish people to stand on the tracks and to tell us that it was okay. Uh, so we, we didn't know. We didn't know where we were going. We were told we were going someplace to the east or to the north, depending on where you were, and there were going to be jobs. And and we believed them because they were Jews, you know, and so it was only when we got there that we learned that we were in the concentration camps. So I had that story, which I just found, I mean, even telling it to you now, and I've told it a million times, I still get shudders mm -hmm. at how people could be so cruel as to use their own people to lie to them. Um, and I'll tell you later in our conversation how relevant that is today. Just remind me before we're done. I don't want to do it now because I don't want to get off track, but there's a story that, that will shock you as to how relevant it is. And so I... Mm -hmm. I um, kind of kept that idea in mind, wrote several other books in between, um, but I always wanted to kind of return to that story about truth and the Holocaust and things like that. And when I came upon that idea in my head of what if it's not adults, but what if it's a boy who's never told a lie in his life before, so that the first lie of his life is this lie. The worst lie he's ever going to tell is this lie, and he doesn't even know that he's telling a lie. And once I got that, then I had the underpinnings of, of the novel and I began to write The Little Liar. Tell me about Nico and why um, did you place a Holocaust story in Greece, which is not necessarily intuitive to many of us who think about Holocaust stories based in Europe. Yeah, that's why I did it. Exactly why. Because uh, I wanted to show that you can still write a shocking, in many ways, uh, a revelation story about the Holocaust that people didn't know about. I happened to have lived in Greece when I was a young man. Uh, I was a musician. I was, I mean, it was, wasn't anything having to do with the Jewishness. I was, uh, I was living on the island of Crete as a, uh, as a singer and a piano player, but I got to know the Greek people and I got to know Greek history a little bit. And so um, I wanted to set it in a place. I didn't want, I love this. Don't, I don't mean this disparagingly. I just didn't want to do the such and such of Auschwitz, you know, book. Those they're beautiful books and they're wonderful, but they've been done. And as a as a writer, you want to be original. You know, you want to find something else. So I didn't want to set it in Poland. I didn't want to set it in Germany. I didn't want it to begin with Kristallnacht. I, I wanted to get something different. And I knew a lot of people didn't know about Greece, and they especially didn't know that Thessaloniki, which was then was called Salonika, had the largest population percentage-wise of Jewish people in all of Europe. You know, people wow. think it had to be something in Poland or it had to be something in Germany. No, Salonika, Greece had, I think at the time before the war was somewhere like 37% of the population was Jewish, which was the largest of any religious group in the, in the group. So it was the majority Jewish city. And they had something like, I don't know, 17 Jewish newspapers and 30 synagogues. And within three years, wiped out. I mean, wiped out. The largest Jewish cemetery in the in the world was in Thessalonica, had almost 400,000 graves going back hundreds of years, wiped out. The Germans not only wiped it out, destroyed it, dug up the graves looking for gold and the corpses, but they used the tombstones for building material for their war efforts. So, I, you know, I said, I bet this is stuff that people don't know. And sure enough, the book has come out and I get that question anytime I do an interview. Why Greece? I didn't even know the Holocaust was in Greece. I didn't even know the Nazis went to Greece. Okay, so that proves that there's still something to be learned. And it's not the same old story over and over again.
So when you said you hesitated to write kind of another Holocaust book, I, I understand that impulse very well. And I, I've actually been lucky enough to judge literary prize. And when we know that it's going to be a Holocaust story, there is a, just a little bit of the like, huh, really? Like, how, how can there be a fresh one? And you really have managed it. What was the discipline to kind of keep it original every step of the way, not just to pick the the landscape, which, by the way, you know, is, is fascinating, you know, on its own, but to kind of make sure you're not falling into, as, as a very experienced writer, you know what the traps are in terms of cliche, even as something as horrific as the Holocaust. Right, right. So two main things in that. Uh, one was not to begin it the day that uh, the trains left for Auschwitz and end it the day the gates were opened. So mm. I started it years before the war, showing the life in Salonika with the family and with Nico and with Fanny, who's the girl that loves him and how he never told a lie and how everybody in his town called him Chioni, which is the Greek word for snow because he was so pure with his honesty and, you know, create this whole beautiful little world. Thessalonica is a gorgeous city and it's right on a bay that looks out to Mount Olympus and and create all the beauty of it all in a place that most people didn't know. And then make sure that I took it well beyond the end of the Holocaust. So, you know, sometimes I hear people refer to this as a Holocaust book and I wince a little bit because it has the Holocaust as a backdrop for the first third of it, but it goes 40 years. It goes into the 80s and it follows the ramifications of this of this lie, which which, you know, uh, so that people understand, I mean, what happens to this little boy, Nico, is he's never told a lie. And this little girl, Fanny, loves him kind of for his honesty. And he's a cute boy and he doesn't look Jewish. She's very blonde and blue eyed. And when the Germans come into his town, they find out about him and they separate him from his family. And this one German officer decides to use his honesty against him. And so he tricks him and he says, I'll let you go back to your family. All you have to do is just stand on these railroad tracks for a few weeks and just tell people that they're going to good homes, new jobs, new and they're all going to be together and they're going to like you for it because they're going to feel a little lost. So you're going to be helping them. So being trustworthy and never having told a lie before and I even know what it is. He does this and he does this every day until the last day when the final train, he sees his own family being shoved inside the boxcar along with this little girl, Fanny, who he loves, and he screams to go with them and, he, and, he, and, they, and the, they don't let him go. And he finds out that these cars are going off to Auschwitz and, and the concentration camps. And from that point forward, um, it follows him for the next 40 years and the ramifications of that one lie on him, on the girl who loves him, on his family, particularly his brother, and on the Nazi who tricked him. And it is meant to show how one lie can tumble us into, you know, all kinds of effects. And this is the second point that I was making to answer your question. Find a narrator that's different than all the other narrators from all the other Holocaust books. And, you know, the, 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 the little, I'll, I'll, if you want to indulge me, I'll read you. I'm, I'm indulging you, please. Show you what I mean. This is at the beginning of the book. You can trust the story you're about to hear. You can trust it because I am telling it to you. And I'm the only thing in this world you can trust. I am the shadow you cannot outrun, the mirror that holds your final reflection. You may duck my gaze for all your days on earth, but let me assure you, I get the last look. I am truth. And this is a story about a boy who tried to break me. 
So I knew when I when I had that and I was going to tell the whole story in the voice of truth and truth was going to look down on that period of time and all the years that followed for this boy and say, look what you did. Look, look what you humans do. You know, I'm a virtue. Look how you destroy me. Look at the ramifications. What happened to this little boy? He becomes a pathological liar. He breaks truth's heart, essentially, because he feels so guilty for the lie that he told that he can no longer tell the truth and it won't mm -hmm. come out of his mouth. And so when you have that narrator, you know, that sort of it's not a person, it's a it's a quality that then I knew I had something that felt, at least to me, original and uh and been seen before absolutely and it strikes me mitch just looking back at your books that there is this really strong thread of spirituality or almost philosophy and that doesn't take away from the storytelling because you are first and foremost just a master storyteller it feels like you want us to get something bigger and deeper and sometimes more challenging and i guess i would love to ask how in this book, are you approaching this idea of the power of truth and the power, frankly, of deception? Because particularly in this time we're living in, where I think I, I've seen you say, you know, we all have our facts and we all have our sources. And in some ways we double down on our echo chambers because we, we are only looking to hear what is going to serve these narratives that we're so invested in. And there's a, there's a danger in that. That's what partly this book is getting at. Yeah. Well, to answer your question, um, first of all, Abigail, you're right. I mean, I do set out in my books to try to have some resonance after the book is over. Uh, in that way, I think I'm a little different than a lot of other uh, fiction writers. I kind of came to fiction writing sideways. I wrote a book called Tuesdays with Maury 20. I think I've heard of it. Six, seven years ago. Yeah. A lot of people have heard of it. And um, I didn't intend, I was a sports writer. And so, you know, I kind of wrote that book just from the heart. I wrote what I wrote it to pay Maury's medical bills. And it was supposed to be a tiny little book. And it was broken down into all these lessons that I learned week by week with Maury, who was my old college professor who was dying from Lou Gehrig's disease. And um, after that book became this, you know, phenomenon that nobody, nobody, at least of all me, would have foreseen. Um, when it came time to write something else, you know, they, they wanted me to write Wednesdays with Maury and chicken soup with Maury and stuff like that. And I said, you know, I'm not going to return to that. I said everything I had to say in that book. But I have noticed in the six years, because it took me six years to write another book, six years since Tuesdays with Maury came out, that people come up to me and they talk to me about how they were moved by this or they're moved by that. I saw the power of my storytelling to do more than just, oh, that was interesting, you know, cute character or whatever. It, people were saying, you know, this was, this was a thing that brought me and my estranged brother together. This was the last thing that my mother and I read together before she died from cancer. You know, this was the thing that got me through um, the grieving of somebody that I lost. I was stunned, to be honest, Abigail. I mean, I, you know, where, who am I to have that kind of ability? Uh, you, you know, I, I, I didn't come from, I remember Amy Tan, who's a friend of mine, um, who wrote The Joy Luck Club and many other things. And I had sent her the book before it came out because I, you know, I'd written sports books up till then. And so I sent it to her. I said, look, you're the only person I know who kind of writes stuff like this, you know, from the heart 
what I would have called back then mushy, you know, uh, you know, relationship books and things like that. Do I have anything here? I mean, is this any good at all? And she read it and she wrote me back. She said, okay, I got two things to say to you. One, it's really good. And uh, I think it's better than you think it is. And two, you're about to become everybody's rabbi. And I had no idea what that meant. I just thought it was Amy being funny. Um, But that was such a prescient uh, observation because in the six years that followed and really in all the years that have followed, in many ways, I hear the stories I have. We share a, a friend, Rabbi David Wolpe, a guy I grew up with before he was Rabbi Wolpe, just Dave to us, David. And um, I've asked him many times, you know, like, what do people ask you, you know, when they see you? And, and the same questions he gets asked and the same comments he gets, I get asked all the time, except he went to rabbinical school. <laughs> you know, he asked for it. I didn't Wait, ask I'm not for ordained. It. Yeah, he got ordained. I, I'm never going to be ordained anything, you know, unless it has to do with football. So, um, you know, I, I started to think about that when it came time to write another book. And I said, if people are looking for me to try to touch on themes that will resonate with them after the book is done, then perhaps I have an obligation to deliver that. And maybe that's what I'm here for, you know. And so I wrote a little book called The Five People You Mean Heaven which was my first novel. And everybody told me I was crazy to write a novel. You're a nonfiction writer. Nobody's ever going to read it. You know, everybody thinks they're a novelist, blah, blah, blah. But I knew, you know, I'm a storyteller. I've always been a storyteller. It doesn't matter if the stories are fictional or, or, or non, you know. And so I told the story about a guy who goes to heaven and finds out that this meaningless life that he thought he had on earth was actually very meaningful because five different people tell him that. And that was, that was meant for people who felt like their lives didn't matter. And sure enough, um, after that book came out, so many people came up to me and said, you know, oh, I gave this to someone who was feeling down about themselves or, or, or I gave this to someone after who just lost somebody and wondered what came next or whatever. And the same kind of effect of Tuesdays with Maury um, was happening with my novel. And that's when I realized, okay, that's, that's who you're going to be. That's how you're going to write. And so you're going to pick themes that you think are moving that are going to resonate beyond the page and beyond the time that people shut the book. And The Little Liar was meant to do that with truth and with forgiveness and hope. Those are the three things that are actually all tied together because as bad as the beginning is, forgiveness plays a huge part in it and hope um, is really the only thing that keeps all these characters going throughout the course of the of the. And, and you invoke Viktor Frankl and how he said that was basically the reason for living was hope. Yeah, and that's he said the difference, uh, the, the difference between the people who survived and the people who died in the concentration camps. He wrote in in Man's Search for Meaning were the ones who thought that tomorrow could be better lived, mm-hmm. and the ones who thought this is it, we're in hell and it's never getting any better, died. Mitch, before we end, you you had mentioned a kind of preview that there is kind of an uncanny parallel in the October 7 massacres um, that happened, um, perpetrated by Hamas. uh, Can you give us that story? Yeah, let me share that with you. So, you know, you you write a book like this as a writer, anyhow, you search for a, a, a wholly original idea. That's what you want, right? I said that I'd waited years until I could write it. And I thought, okay, I have an inch, an original idea, a boy, 
whose honesty is used against him by evil forces, um, that's original, that's going to captivate people. So the book comes out, and I'm in New York on the weekend of the first week, and I run into Anderson Cooper, who's a friend of mine from CNN, and he had just gotten back. I, I went to high school with him. <laughs> oh, good guy. Very good guy. Great guy. And um, we were together at a function, and he said, I can't believe your story. Did you hear about this Israeli kid named Tomer? And I said, no. He said, you don't know the parallel? And I said, what parallel? He said, told me the story that he had reported on while he was there about this young man named Tomer. He wasn't as young as my character. He was a teenager. And when Hamas came over on October 7th, um, they found him and they kidnapped him, pulled him away from his family. And under the threat of killing his family, they made him go door to door in his village and knock on all the doors and in a calm voice say to the people who knew him, it's safe to come out. You can come out. They're gone. And when the people came out, Hamas murdered them mm -hmm. one by one, family by family. And then after they finished, they killed their little liar. They murdered him, too. And I, sh I got chills, the bad kind of chills because I realized that the evil that you imagine in your head as a literary person, sometimes the evil that we commit in this world. And, and that, that here I thought I had this story that was almost fantastical, you know, it can never really happen that way. And, and, and it pretty much happened that way just a few weeks back. It's a cautionary tale. Um, it's a hopeful tale. And, um, you know, I, I do want to emphasize the hope of this book because sometimes people hear Holocaust and they, oh, I don't want to read something about the Holocaust. I don't want to read about a kid who's good, but it's not like that. You know, I can't write without hope. I, I have been, I've been criticized for writing with too much hope. I, I, there was a critic who took me apart once in a, in a review paragraph by paragraph. And at the end, he saved his, his best shot for the end. Uh, he said, ah, he's nothing more than the king of hope. And, um, I remember reading that and saying, well, it's not a bad throne to be stuck on. You know, I'm all right with that. I'll take and, it. Uh, yeah. And I've come to realize that people look to my works to have that. And so even though it starts very difficultly, you know, for young Nico um, and he becomes this reclusive, uh, he becomes a millionaire, you know, uh, I'm not giving away too much of the book, but, you know, when you lie, and lie and lie, you can become incredibly successful. And he does, but he's fraught with guilt and uh, of what he did. And he's, he becomes reclusive. Nobody knows him. Nobody knows his real name, whatever. And yet this one girl who was in love with him when she was 12, spends her whole life trying to find him again, just to forgive him. And that, that goodness, that, you know, that hope that we can make things right, is what we need in our lives. It's it's what got us through the Holocaust. It's what got us through the years that followed. And it's what will get us through this period of time now too. It's impossible to f believe it now because we all feel so dire, but this will pass and our hope and our belief in, in the future and our forgiveness, which is what's something we're gonna need to do, uh, which is the other theme of the book, are gonna need to come into play to get us through this period of time. Mitch Album, thank you for this time and for this book. It is wonderful. It's called The Little Liar. And it is just a pleasure to talk to you. And I recommend it to everyone. I'm Abigail Pugman for In the Spotlight. 
And I hope you will join us next time. Take care.